Medicare Part D, the 10-year-old benefit program for prescription drug coverage, had a rocky start. As reflected in perspective articles in the journal, with titles such as Part D for Defective, the Medicare Drug Benefit Chaos, and Medicare Part D, the product of a broken process. But the program has since improved access to medications at lower than expected cost, and its implementation may carry lessons for other healthcare reforms. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Julie Donahue, an Associate Professor of Health Policy and Management in the Graduate School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Donahue has written a perspective article on the impact and evolution of Medicare Part D. Dr. Donahue, can you begin by giving us a little history? Where did the impetus for Part D come from, and what were the main issues in the early discussions about it? Well, the impetus was that Medicare from its start in 1965 did not include a prescription drug benefit. This wasn't a big deal in the 60s and 70s when prescription drug spending was low and didn't account for a large share of -of out-of-pocket spending for Medicare beneficiaries. But in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, drug spending was at least a couple of thousand dollars per beneficiary. And while many Medicare beneficiaries had some source of drug coverage, either through retiree health benefits or purchasing Medigap policy, many didn't. About 20% of Medicare beneficiaries had no drug coverage and had poor adherence to medication therapy as a result. You say in your article that one key question about Part D was whether Medicare beneficiaries would, in fact, enroll in the program. Why was it created as a voluntary benefit rather than as part of the main Medicare program? Well, I think that was really mostly a political calculation because, again, the majority of Medicare beneficiaries had some source of drug coverage. The sense was requiring everyone to have it and enforcing it through some sort of penalty might be politically unpopular. And in fact, there was some reason to believe that was true. Congress passed in the late 1980s legislation called the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act that included a mandatory drug benefit, and it was so unpopular, it was actually repealed before it even went into effect. So the voluntary benefit was seen as a more politically advantageous way to go. You point out that 20% of Medicare beneficiaries did not have alternative drug coverage. Was the point of Medicare Part D that it would fill in those gaps in coverage, or would it also include the hope that it would have economic benefits through consolidation of coverage? So I think it hoped to close the coverage gap, certainly to expand coverage to those who had none. But there were also many millions of beneficiaries. About 25% of Medicare beneficiaries had drug coverage through some other source that was considered not very generous. So, for example, beneficiaries enrolled in a Medicare managed care plan often had pharmacy benefits, but they were limited maybe to $1,000 a year and that was considered inadequate. Likewise, beneficiaries who had signed up for a Medigap plan with drug benefits also faced these limits. So I think the sense was that Medicare wanted to preserve more generous coverage that was coming from retiree health benefits and not necessarily take the place of that coverage, but address the coverage gaps and the inadequate sources of coverage. I think Congress and the White House didn't intend for 100% of Medicare beneficiaries to be enrolled in Part D. They didn't want to substitute completely for private coverage, but to fill in those gaps. You note in your article that although planned participation has been high, in fact, 
That doesn't mean that the beneficiaries aren't always making the best choices among plans. And in fact, only 5% of beneficiaries choose the plan with the lowest out-of-pocket costs. So is cost the only important variable here, or is the size of the formulary, for example, also important in that choice? That's a great question. And there are a couple of different determinants of what's a good plan choice. And obviously, out-of-pocket cost is just one consideration, but but many people feel like it should be one of the primary goals of insurance to reduce out-of-pocket burden. Um, So one factor to consider is the premium, and that tends to be the aspect of the drug benefit that beneficiaries pay the most attention to. But in addition to the premium, the formulary and the cost sharing for specific drugs on the formulary have even more of an effect on the out-of-pocket burden than the premium does. And what we find is that most beneficiaries don't take all of these different bits of information into account when making their choice. And so they're not getting the complete picture in terms of what their out-of-pocket cost will be. So is the problem that it's just too difficult for the average Medicare beneficiary to actually compare the plans? Well, CMS did make efforts to provide tools for beneficiaries. There was a plan finder tool that was made available on the web that would give beneficiaries a list of plan options in their area, and they could even enter the drugs that they were taking and find out which plan would cover those drugs at the lowest possible cost. Unfortunately, only a minority of beneficiaries were aware of these tools or could use them effectively. And I think this is a problem that's relatively generic to all insurance markets, that really understanding the complete picture of a benefit and cost sharing is difficult to do. Sometimes it's because, obviously, we can't always predict what kinds of health care or what kinds of medications we'll need for the upcoming year. But for something like prescription drugs, where it's a little bit more predictable from year to year what medications we're going to be taking, because many of them are for chronic conditions, we don't always bring that information to the plan choice. Do you think that making choices among insurance plans in the exchanges that have been set up under the ACA is easier, or does that difficulty still exist? I think that difficulty still exists, and to some extent, I think that the decision-making is a little bit more complex in the exchanges than in Part D. And again, it's because prescription drug spending, especially for older people, is relatively predictable from year to year. It doesn't change a whole lot. If you use six or seven prescriptions in one year, you're likely to use six or seven the next year and the year after that. Whereas healthcare spending is a little bit less predictable. You don't know when you're going to have an infection that lands you in the hospital or an accident. And there's so many different parts of the benefit, the cost sharing that you face at the doctor's office or for screening tests or for hospital care. There are many different domains of the benefit that need to be considered when an enrollee is trying to decide what the best source of coverage will be. In general, though, what you tend to see is that plans that have higher premiums will have lower cost sharing. So if you're a relatively high utilizer of care, it might be worth it for you to invest in the plan that has the higher premium up front, but then lower cost sharing for each time you go to the doctor or hospital or pharmacy. Switching gears a bit, Medicare isn't allowed to negotiate prices with drug companies, and you write in your article that although Part D costs have been about 30% lower 
than they were originally projected to be, they could be even lower still. Do you think it's possible that that rule about price negotiation will change? That's a great question. And certainly we don't expect it to change anytime soon, and pharmaceutical companies would certainly not want that to happen. I think the tension here is that because Medicare is such an important payer for prescription drugs, policymakers will be nervous about regulating prices too much because it might have a dampening effect on investments in research and development for new drugs in the future. But again, obviously, they have to balance that against cost considerations. And we don't want Medicare to be paying too much for prescription drugs. You outline in your article some proposed changes to Part D that actually have been enacted, most famously the closing of the donut hole, and some possible changes that have so far encountered too much resistance. How do you actually see the program changing in the near term and the far term? I think that CMS had signaled a willingness to become a more active purchaser by setting limits on some of the choices that beneficiaries might face. So one area of concern has been plan choice and are beneficiaries making the best choice for them in terms of lowering out-of-pocket cost. And I think CMS was interested in considering reducing the total number of choices so it wasn't so difficult for beneficiaries to make sense of all the different plan options. I think there was some resistance on the part of plan sponsors and possibly some consumer groups to limiting choice in that way. CMS had also signaled that it was willing to allow Medicare drug plans to place some restrictions on some medication classes. When CMS was first implementing Medicare Part D, it told Part D plans that it had to cover all or substantially all drugs in six different classes because it was concerned that Part D formularies might be too restrictive on choice of antipsychotics and antidepressants. And in a proposed rule, CMS signaled a willingness to move away from some of that, those requirements and basically giving plans the option of reducing some coverage of antidepressants, antipsychotics, and some other drugs. And again, here, what CMS is trying to balance is the goal of reducing cost, improving efficiency by allowing Part D plans to restrict coverage of some drugs to improve their price negotiations with drug companies against concerns about access or balanced against concerns about access to medication in those drug classes. I think the fact that CMS had proposed these rules means it's considering ways of improving the efficiency of the program, but obviously we'll need to consider feedback from the various constituencies in Part D, beneficiaries, consumer groups representing those beneficiaries, providers, plan sponsors, and of course pharmaceutical companies. Finally, if you were extrapolating from the Part D experience to the Affordable Care Act, what lessons do you see as most salient for current and future health care reform? Well, I think one of the important lessons is that you can't necessarily generalize from the first year of a program to the subsequent years. So, as you mentioned at the beginning, the headlines about Part D in 2005 and 2006 sounded an awful lot like the headlines in late 2013 and 2014 about the ACA. I think there was a lot of confusion about Part D when it was first set up, 
there were concerns that this new market wouldn't work, that people would not know enough to be able to navigate the market. They wouldn't sign up for coverage. And in fact, our enrollment in Medicare Part D has grown from just over 50% of beneficiaries in the first year to more than two-thirds of beneficiaries having Part D benefits last year. So I think it takes time. It takes a couple of years at least for people who are eligible for coverage to become aware of a program, to enroll in that program, and to experience the benefits. And until people experience the benefits of an insurance program, especially something that's new and a little different, the public opinion of that program may be relatively low. Thank you, Dr. Donahue.